It's time now for us to turn our attention to God's Word. I love the Lord and I love His Word. How about you this morning? I'm so thankful for the precious treasure and wonderful gift that the Word of God truly is. And uh, we're going to be on page 916 if you're using a pew Bible or if you need a pew Bible. I don't know what page we're on in your Bible, but that one in front of you, it's page 916. And we're going to look today at the final passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians. This will be message number 15 in this series from one of the greatest set of writings in the Bible, Paul's letter to the Galatians. I hope it's been beneficial to you. We've been looking at the subject of the essential gospel, the gospel boiled down to its core and boiled down to its most important uh, elements. And so we've tried to unpack that in ways that have been helpful and practical and true to God's Word all at the same time. And today we come to the beginning of the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and as we do that, we're going to find that Paul concludes with an emphasis on the most important thing, the very thing that mattered to the Apostle Paul more than anything else in all of his ministry. And you know what that most important thing was? The cross, the cross, and nothing but the cross, what mattered most to the Apostle Paul in his life and ministry was the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question that we want to raise today is, why is the cross so important? Why is it so significant to the life of every believer? And how can you identify a life that's totally consumed by the cross, a life that's totally dominated by the cross? How can you identify a life that's guided by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as the most significant part of a human's life. You know, it was Paul's normal custom uh, not to actually handwrite the letters that we have contained in our Bibles that are uh, from him. Uh, He would typically dictate his letters, and there were probably lots of reasons that he would do that, but Paul typically used a scribe or what sometimes is called an amanuensis. We might call it a secretary. He he would dictate, and that's what he's doing for most of this letter to the Galatians. But as we draw near the end of the letter, Paul does something unusual. He stops the scribe, and he asks for the scribe's pen. And the apostle Paul, the tent maker by trade, maybe that's why he did it, because he had gnarly fingers perhaps, But he takes the pen in his own hand, and he begins to draft the conclusion of this letter by himself. And here's what the Apostle Paul actually wrote in Galatians by his own hand. Galatians 6, beginning in verse number 11. Are you all ready to read from God's Word? Would you say amen? See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And not only that they may not be persecuted, or uh, only rather in order that they may not be persecuted for the cause of Christ or for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." But far be it from me to boast, except 
in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, Paul ends this letter to the Galatians kind of like John Hancock ended the Declaration of Independence, didn't he? That great big signature there, he wanted to make sure everybody who read it saw that his name was most prominent on it. And that's kind of the way Paul ends this letter, really big script, large letters, to use his phraseology. He probably does that. Lots of people want to know why he did that. Some people surmise he had bad eyesight, which I believe that he did, but I don't think that's why he was writing in large letters here. He wasn't writing in large letters for himself. He was writing in large letters for those church members in South Galatia and for everybody else who might come in contact with that letter. Kind of like the way some people I know write emails when they're just a little bit hot under the collar. Y'all ever gotten an email that had a statement in it? It was all capital letters with about 12 exclamation points behind it. Don't you just want to knock somebody upside the head when they send you a statement like that? Or sometimes they'll use that intensive, bold print in order for something to stand out and for something to really grab your attention. That's what I think Paul is doing with these really large letters, because the paragraph that we just read is an effective summary of the whole letter. If you want to know what Galatians is all about, and say you're pressed for time and you don't have time to read all six chapters, and you just want to know, cut to the chase, which is what a lot of y'all wish I would do with every sermon, right? Cut to the chase. What you would need to do is read Galatians 6, 11 through 18, and you'd basically have a snapshot of what's going on in this letter. And it's the cross, not the cross plus anything else. It summarizes the letter by reminding us that the gospel is not a cross plus gospel. The gospel is a Christ alone gospel, which emphasizes the cross alone plus absolutely nothing else. And it's the cross that takes first place in the last word of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We often speak, and and we're correct when we do it, of a believer needing to live a Christ-centered life. And I believe that's true. We need to live a Christ-centered life. But you cannot live a Christ-centered life without living a cross-centered life. They're exactly the same thing. And what a cross-centered life actually looks like is our subject for the day. What does a cross-centered life look like? Well, I'm going to give you four things to jot down. I could give you several, but sticking with this passage of Scripture, I'm going to give you four marks of a cross-centered life. The first is simply that a cross-centered life seeks the glory of God rather than the glory of men. It seeks the glory of God. It boasts only in what God has done. It boasts only in what God can do. It boasts only in the work of God supremely demonstrated in the cross of Christ. That's what we find in verses 12 and 13. 
Verses 12 and 13 here in Galatians chapter 6 form not only an effective summary of Galatians, but it also points out a principal motivation of all of those Judaizing false teachers that had followed uh, behind Paul up in South Galatia and were throwing the church into confusion by spreading what amounted to a false gospel, a pseudo-gospel, a contra-gospel. Look again at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And then jump over to verse 13. They desire, these false teachers, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so those false teachers were really wrapped up in a double boasting. They wanted to boast in what they were doing, and they wanted to boast in what they had done to the Christians of South Galatia by forcing them to be circumcised. Now, y'all remember, we hadn't talked about circumcision for several weeks since we kind of left the theological portion of Galatians, but y'all will remember, no doubt, what was damning about the message of these false teachers is that they were saying that the cross was not sufficient to save. Acts 15 and verse 1 reminds us that the, the summary of their message went something like this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were teaching. And it drove, drove Paul nutty. That's why his tone is pretty hostile throughout much of this letter. Because for those false teachers, salvation was driven by human performance. Salvation was all about what you did for God rather than what God did for you. Salvation meant the cross plus something else, namely circumcision. And there's always been a danger in that on the part of the church. It's not always been circumcision, but throughout the nearly 2,000-year history of the church, there's been this constant temptation to add stuff to the gospel. Even in churches today, from pulpits today, it's not cross alone, it's cross plus. It may be cross plus baptism in order to save you. It may be cross plus the Lord's Supper in order to save you. It may be cross plus church membership in order to say, but whatever the it is, it's cross plus. And that it is always a problem when it comes to the gospel. That's the summary of the message of the false teachers. And fundamentally, it's why we have the letter to the Galatians in our Bibles today. Because in the biblical gospel, can I say it yet again for the final time in this series, the cross always stands alone because the cross is sufficient to save and it does not need anybody else's help. The motivation behind their message, that's the summary of their message. But there's a motivation behind their message. It has everything to do with their own sense of pride. To use that great theologian Barney Fife's expression, or actually it was Andy Griffith, I guess, they were proud, 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 proud. And there's no way to miss it because there's just a whole lot of boasting going on here at the end of this letter, isn't there? When Paul says in verse 12, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. He's basically saying that those Judaizers were all about appearances. They want to look good to people. You remember that statement that Paul makes back in chapter 1 where he asks a question basically, am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? So he makes this statement, this courageous statement at the very beginning of the letter 
If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. And the reason he would not be a servant of Jesus Christ is because if he was trying to please men in his primary motivation, he could not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Those who are true servants of Jesus Christ have one motivation, to please him alone. And yet Paul calls out these men, and he says they're all about appearances. The only reason they're trying to make you to be circumcised is they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They're more about pleasing men than about pleasing God, and circumcision is how they were doing it. Verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, that's a literal use of the word flesh right there in verse 13. They were boasting in their foreskins is what that means. They were bragging about the number of foreskins they had collected like a lot of preachers boast about how many people they baptized at the preacher's meetings on Monday mornings. And that's just as wrong, by the way, if God's not getting the glory in it. Nothing wrong with celebrating how many people you baptize. Just make sure you give the glory to God and the glory to the Holy Spirit who brought about the salvation of those souls. No, God wasn't getting glory through this false leadership that was taking place in South Galatia. Paul knew their motivation, and Paul knew his motivation, and he knew his motivation was totally different, and you see it in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except, say it out loud, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me just say, that's a very fitting summary of the letter to the Galatians, but even more to the point, if you're looking for a summary of Paul's life and ministry, you won't find a better one than that statement right there. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That was Paul's only boast. It was in the very thing that most people in his day and time would have never identified as an object of boasting. They saw the cross as an object of scandal, as an object of scorn, as an object of degradation, something to be avoided at all cost. But that's where Paul found the primary source of his boasting, in nothing but the cross. Man, today, and there's not a thing wrong with it, we wear them about our necks on very expensive jewelry, We have the cross tattooed on our bodies. We have it displayed prominently on our Christian buildings. We sing it loudly in our music as we've done here this morning, just about every song majored on the cross. But you know something? No first century Greco-Roman would have understood any of that. I mean, they would have scorned that. They would have laughed at it. They They would have questioned that. What is that all about? And yet, in the face of all that potential ridicule, what Paul called foolishness, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks, Paul says, that's the only thing I boast about. Why? Because without the cross, we're left with nothing but sin. Without the cross, we're left with nothing but brokenness. Without the cross, we're left with nothing but alienation and eternal separation from God. We're hopelessly lost apart from the cross. And so Paul Paul boasted in it because only the cross has the power to heal the brokenness, repair the breach, restore 
our eternal relationship with a holy God. Let me just say this morning, you can do one of two things. You can either boast in you or you can boast in the cross, but there is no way anybody can do both at the same time. It's one or the other. They are mutually exclusive, and the cross-centered life seeks the glory of God, and one way it does that is by boasting only in the cross, right? Everybody with me so far? Say amen. There's a second thing about the cross-centered life, and that is it's willing to endure persecution for the sake of the gospel. Now, here's where everybody wishes they'd just stay home on Memorial Day weekend, right? Pastor's going to talk about persecution. That's right. Because you know what? If you're living openly and boldly for Jesus Christ, a measure of that's inevitable, even in the good old USA. And if you're not experiencing any of it, maybe you ought to ask yourself, why not? Because you live openly for Jesus, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your neighborhood, they know you're living for Jesus. There'll be some measure of persecution because of what you believe. And it seems like the Judaizers, those false teachers up in South Galatia, wanted nothing to do with that. They were motivated not only by this desire to boast and brag about themselves, but they were also motivated, Paul says, by fear, by what they were afraid of. That's in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And then watch this. Only in order that they may not be what? That they may not be persecuted. Why? For the cross of Christ. See, that's the real issue right there. They were afraid of their kinsmen. They were afraid of their countrymen. Remember, these were Jews. These were Jewish Christians. These were ethnic Jewish believers who had indicated vocally that they trusted Christ for salvation, but yet they were very afraid of what their conservative brethren down there in Jerusalem, and not only their brethren in Jerusalem, I think they were fearful too of just the average synagogue that they might go into. They were concerned about what people might think. They were concerned about what people might say. They were concerned about how their kinsmen might react. If they had abandoned the law of Moses in favor of all this talk about a grace-based salvation. They were fearful. And again, Paul would have none of it because not only was the apostle Paul willing to endure persecution for the sake of the gospel, he thought that some measure of persecution for the sake of the gospel is inevitable for those who live by the gospel. I don't think it's in your notes today. Maybe it is. It may be on the screen. Second Corinthian, uh, Second Timothy, rather, chapter 3. Second Timothy 3 and verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's an all-encompassing statement. All who desire to live a godly life, not only desire to live a godly life, but who actually do that with their life, who live openly for Jesus, boldly for Jesus, unashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. All who are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and whose life reflects that will be persecuted. Now, that'll take different forms in different parts of the world. Some parts of the world, you may lose your life. Some parts of the world, you may have your house burned down. Some parts of the world, you may have your children executed right in front of you if you believe the wrong thing. You all know what I'm talking about. Here, it probably won't be that severe, but you might lose your job. You might lose a friend. 
You might be the object of scorn or mockery. It'll be a milder form more often than not. Sometimes it might be extreme even in the United States. Now, remember Paul who wrote that to Timothy, and that was out of Paul's last letter in the New Testament of the 13 that he wrote, is writing from a Roman prison cell, and he won't get out of that cell alive. So here, here's the context. Paul writing to Timothy, imprisoned in Rome under the Neronian persecution of the crazy Emperor Nero who had lost his mind. And Paul knows most likely he will not come out of that prison cell alive, and he would not. He lost his head. Is writing and telling Timothy, because what's on Paul's heart? I want the gospel work of the Great Commission to be perpetuated into the future, and I've left Timothy behind, who has a little bit of intimidation, a little bit of fear in him, who's never been in a first chair leadership position. I want him to know that he needs to be like me, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and unalarmed at what he is surely to face. And so he's very honest with them. Don't be ashamed, but be realistic. All who live godly for Christ will inevitably in some way, shape, or form suffer for Christ. And this is Paul's way of saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel and neither should you be. And I'm willing to suffer for the gospel and you should be too. Unlike the Judaizers there in South Galatia, who would rather equivocate and shimmy and shake and compromise rather than stand firm and suffer. Paul says in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the what? Say it out loud, the, the marks of Jesus. Now, Paul's not waxing poetically here. Those marks were literal scars on his body. He had the scars. <clears throat> He had the bruises to show that he had not only been willing to suffer for the gospel, that he had suffered for the gospel. He was faithful to the gospel, and he paid a price for it. He'd been stoned and left for dead in Lystra, which is where Timothy was from. Lystra's Timothy. Timothy was a Galatian from Lystra. Timothy knew the story of Paul. Paul was stoned for preaching the gospel and left in the ditch for dead. Paul had been beaten with rods in Philippi. Imprisoned twice in Rome, once in Philippi, probably in Galatians, though I can't prove that. I believe he was, or not Galatians, but in Ephesus. And why all this persecution? Why was he persecuted like that? He boasted in the cross. It's not rocket science. He made much of Jesus. And he did it by pointing people to the only hope beyond the grave which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the same thing happens today. I mean, we often wonder, why, why, do, why, why does good news create such bad, bad vibes among so many people? And yet it does. I mean, it's the greatest news of all, and yet people get so hacked off at it. And you know why? Again, it's not rocket science. Because when you share the gospel with somebody, you know what you're telling them? You're not as good as you think you are. You don't have what it takes to measure up to God. Neither do I. You need help because you're broken and you don't have it all together. You want everybody to think you've got it all together, but you don't have it all together. You know it. I know it. The whole world knows it. We're all broken because of sin. 
You know what I found out in 30 years of ministry? People don't like to be called sinners. People don't like to be told that they're broken. People don't like it when you tell them that if God doesn't rescue them, they can never hope to be saved. People don't like to be told there is none that doeth good. No, not one. No, not you. They don't want to hear that because it's an affront to human pride. Again, what's the, the same problem of the Judaizers is all of our problems. So we ought not be too hard on them. Again, to quote my good friend Andy Taylor, pride, 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 pride. And that's why people take it the wrong way. Most people are fine with Jesus. Jesus is hip. Jesus is cool. Everybody thinks Jesus is a great exemplar and a wonderful example. It's the cross they don't like. And most people that you know that are outside the family of God want a Christ without a cross. And there is no such thing biblically as a Christ without a cross. This is why so many preachers and so many Christians preach a cross-less gospel. Y'all know many of the popular preachers in the world today. You never hear a word about the cross. You never hear a word about sin. You never hear a word about the blood. Isn't it amazing? I mean, people lift those preachers up on their shoulders and shout hurrah to the highest heaven because there's nothing at all offensive. Listen, if you don't have at least some people upset with you because of what you say about the gospel, you're probably not preaching the gospel because the gospel cuts. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The gospel cuts. The Word cuts. But I'm just saying, down deep, when you're eaten up with infection, sometimes you've got to be opened up in order for that infection to be cured. And that's what the gospel does. But to be opened up down deep stings, and it hurts, and it's painful. And when you live a cross-centered life, sometimes that message won't always be embraced. People will be hostile to it. And that's inevitable, Paul says. But the cross-centered Christian is willing to face it. And that's a mark. How do I know I'm a cross-centered Christian? I'm willing. I don't go out looking for it. I'm not picking fights. But I'm willing to suffer persecution because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Everybody still with me? Amen? Third, the cross-centered life faithfully practices what it preaches. It's consistent. It gives a verbal witness, but it then demonstrates the reality of that witness by a life that backs it up. Now, remember the fundamental question that Galatians addresses is how is a person gained standing before God? How is a person saved? Is it by what we do for God or is it by what God does for me? And Paul answers that question again over and over in the letter, right? 
Back in chapter 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Or Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, right? So we've seen this over and over. You can't be saved by what you do. And it's for this reason that Paul knows that his opponents in South Galatia are legalistic hypocrites because they're up there preaching that very contra-gospel. It's all about what you do for God. It's all about human works. And Paul knew that made them legalistic hypocrites because he says in verse 13, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Hypocrisy. Because that's what they were teaching. Get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, right? And he knew there was this obvious disconnect between their teaching and the way that they lived. They were trying to convince the Gentiles they had to be circumcised and keep that law of Moses in order to be saved. But then all the while, they were incapable of keeping the law themselves. They, weren't, they may have been circumcised, but they sure weren't faithful in keeping the law because nobody's ever been faithful in keeping the law. See, the problem, remember, is not with the law itself. The law is holy. The law is good. The law is of God. The law is a standard. The problem's not the law. The problem is sin. Sin won't allow a human being to keep the law. It's sin that keeps you falling short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is why to preach a gospel that's based on human achievement as a way to God is not good news. It's bad news because nobody can do it. And it reveals the one who's preaching that as a hypocrite because there's no way that they can live up to that standard. They don't practice what they preach. And the reason they don't practice what they preach is they can't practice what they preach. Now, the difference between cross-centered believers and man-centered believers is that while we're not perfect, in terms of our obedience to the Word of God. I mean, when you've been saved, when you've been born again by faith in Christ, don't you have a desire to please God with every area of your life? You long to walk in holiness, <clears throat> to live in a way that pleases the Lord. I mean, you want your life to be a consistent reflection of right belief on the one hand and right behavior on the other, and that's what happens to someone who understands their shortcomings and does exactly what Paul says earlier in this letter, back one chapter in chapter 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is the humility of the cross-centered believer. Because when we're cross-centered, we realize we can never measure up on our own. We've got to have God's help. And we recognize that God has given us help in the Spirit of God. And the greatest desire of our heart is to please the Lord by walking in holiness. And in order to do that, I have to crucify the flesh every day, and I have to make a decision with my mind and in my heart to walk by the Spirit so I will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. The cross-centered life. Believers practice what they preach when they're cross-centered. Believers seek the glory of God, not men, when they're cross-centered. Believers are willing to endure persecution when they're cross-centered. Y'all got time for one more real quick? Say amen. The cross-centered life is founded on the gospel of grace. How many of you believe in the amazing grace of God? How many of you are thankful for the grace of God? 
Amen. No, cross-centered life realizes, man, if it weren't for that cross, if it weren't for God's love, if it weren't for God's richness and mercy and grace, I would have no chance whatsoever. And so we major on grace in the kingdom of Christ. Those Jude- you know what made those Judaizers bad preachers and bad leaders? I mean, they were bad preachers and they were bad leaders for, for a lot of the reasons that we've mentioned already today. But the worst thing about them was that they denied the grace of God. They denied grace. They, and, and by doing that, they placed this burden of responsibility on people that those people were not able to bear. And they were leading them wittingly or unwittingly. They were leading those people off a cliff to their own destruction. That's why Paul's so angry in this letter. That's why the tone is so hostile. Paul cuts to the chase in verse 15, and he gives us the theme of the letter in a single sentence. Verse 15, it's on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Together. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You know why that's important? Because much of this letter is founded on what they were doing with circumcision and saying you got to be circumcised in order to be saved, putting the, sh- the burden of responsibility for salvation on people by works-based orientation. And you know what Paul says right here at the end of the letter? He said, let me just summarize everything. Let me just cut to the chase right here. Circumcision don't matter. Circumcision is irrelevant. It does not matter in the least when it comes to your relationship to God. In fact, Paul says the only reason I'm even talking about it is because y'all are talking about it. And if y'all had shut up about it, I'd shut up about it too. But I have to talk about it because these people are up there talking about it, but it has nothing to do with salvation. Neither does baptism, neither does communion, neither does church membership, neither do acts of service done in the name of Christ. None of that has anything to do with how a person is made right with God, especially circumcision. Can I just say, a surgical procedure will never save anybody. We do, what we need is not physical reconfiguration. What we need is not political or social revolution. What we need is not ethical or behavioral reformation. Can I tell you what we need this morning? What people need more than anything else is regeneration. We need to be born again by the Spirit of God. We need God to show up in our lives and radically recreate what is lost and decayed and broken and destroyed on the inside of us. Because apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And if God by his spirit does not show up and raise us from the dead, we are hopelessly lost in our sin. And no surgical procedure will ever correct that. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Paul says what's needed is a new creation. And that's why we love 2 Corinthians 5.17 so much. We quote that verse probably as much as any in the Bible, don't we? We don't often quote verse 16. I don't think it's on your notes today. But verse 16 says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. (laughs) Great. That's what Galatians have been saying for six chapters. We, We regard nobody according to the flesh. And then Paul says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, 
all things have become new. I made very clear early on in this series that there was one word that was the operative word in the book of Galatians. If anybody remembers what that one word is, you've got a box of Snickers candy bars waiting on you today. What's the one operative word in Galatians? Anybody remember? Grace, that's right. Grace is the operative word in Galatians because there is no salvation apart from the grace of God. And how fitting that Paul, who began the letter with a grace greeting, grace to you and peace, he says in Galatians 1 and 2. How fitting that the same Paul who began the letter with a grace greeting closes the letter with a grace benediction in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brother. Grace is the first word in Galatians, and grace is the last word in Galatians. Try as you might, you cannot spell gospel without grace. And that means the gospel has very little to do with you. All you need to do is respond to the grace of God as demonstrated in the cross of Christ. It has nothing to do with human performance. It has everything to do with God's performance in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul begins and ends on the same note. God has one people. He calls them here at the end of this letter, the Israel of God. That's a reference to the church. The Israel of God made up of ethnic Jews and Gentiles alike. God has one people, Jews and Gentiles, who are united by one thing and one thing alone, the grace of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why we have Galatians in our Bibles, and this is the essential gospel that we do well as a people never to forget. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. This, brothers and sisters, is God's eternal word, and let all God's people say amen, amen this morning. Put your hands together, and let's praise the Lord for His marvelous grace. <laughs>